0: Here's what we're going to do. We have come all the way through redemptive history from Adam, through the Noahic covenant period, through the Abrahamic covenant period, through Moses and the Exodus. We've seen how um, all of that is preparatory for the coming Redeemer and all those different spots. We've looked at Judges. And then last time we were together, we looked at Ruth to the kingdom, and that's really that kingdom preparation period, really from Judges till the coming of, till God appoints David. I know... Saul is the first king, the God's appointed king, and David, and, and the Davidic Covenant, which we can look at a little bit in more context. What I want to do tonight is I want to talk about uh, redemptive songs, which really are the, the inspired hymnody that God gave Israel You know, a lot of people make fun of singing psalms, which is really sad because the Holy Spirit inspired them and gave us an inspired songbook that we should love and cherish. But I think one of the reasons that people don't love it more is because they haven't come to understand the rich um, Christology of the psalms, how the psalms are all um, organically related to the work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. And we're going to see that tonight. It's not easy at all. Um, Some of the best theologians in the history of the church have disagreed on how to read the Psalms Christologically. We're going to talk about principles. Uh, My goal is to help you so that when you go from here, you will better be prepared to read the Psalms and to benefit maximally from them as redemptive historical songs, songs in redemptive history that have everything to do with the coming Redeemer when they're written, and everything for us as we look back at his finished work and them in light of that. And it's not easy, so I'll just tell you that right now. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into a consideration of these things. I'll read the first and the second psalm to us, and then we're going to touch on a number of psalms. Just very quickly, briefly, this is just an introduction. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would please help us. We want to be faithful um, students of your word and faithful disciples of your son. We know our own propensity to um, to wander from him and to wander from the scriptures. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that long uh, to read your word and to believe it, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you and To know him who was made sin for us, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we ask that through the mediation of your son, we would better understand how the Psalms help us to experience lives of uh, faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord Jesus, be present with us. We pray that you would give us attention, make us focused. We pray and help us to keep these things and to benefit from them. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, look over at Psalm 2, if you would. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now turn over to Hebrews 1 if you would. And then we'll go back to Psalm 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important that we do this especially. Hebrews 1, great chapter about how Christ is um, better than the angels. He's the greatest. He is God. He's the brightness of God's glory. He created all things. He upholds all things. He made purification for our sins by himself, all the majesty of Jesus and the superiority of Jesus and that nobody's greater than him and that he is very God of very God. And then the writer strings together seven Old Testament citations, all of which but one are from the Psalms, starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, Today I've begotten you. There's quoting Psalm 2 that we just read. And again, I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him, again from the Psalms. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire, another quote from the Psalms. But to the son, he says, and he's going to quote Psalm 45 here, the father says to the son, In Psalm 45, your throne, O God, the Father calls the Son God, in Psalm 45, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Then he quotes Psalm 102, here in verse 10, And you, Jehovah, the Father says to the Son, You, Jehovah, the father calls the son Jehovah in Psalm 102. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said? And this is the last citation from Psalm 110. The father says to the son there, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your footstool. Now it's interesting when we come to a consideration of the Psalms, and the Psalms are some of the richest of ever of any portion of the Scripture, and yet also some of the most difficult to really understand carefully. One of the problems that we're faced with when we study the Psalms is we don't always know the historical context of the Psalm. We don't always know who wrote it. Most of the Psalms were written by David, some were written by Asaph, some were written by the sons of Korah, one was written by Moses, and then there's a litany that we don't know who wrote them, Hezekiah might have written one, Hezekiah put them all together in the order in which we find them, presumably, most scholars believe. And so one difficulty we have is that when we talk about biblical interpretation, we often talk about authorial intent. What did the author mean? What was the historical situation? What was he going through? What was Israel going through? Why was this being written at this time period? And when we come to the Psalms, it's not always easy to do that. I think that it's not always easy to do that because we're not meant to do it in every case. And this is where it gets tricky because we are meant to do it in many cases. But in some cases, I think we're meant to understand generally the experience of the believer in light of the redemptive work of Christ. Or we're to understand the experience of Christ, as in Psalm 22, without respect to David. So when Psalm 22 opens and, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why have you cast me off? You know, Bulls surround me. Many bulls of Bashan encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They look at me and stare. All my bones are dried up. I don't believe, and there are many writers, John Owen would be one of them, that that has anything to do with David's experience whatsoever. That we would make a huge mistake if we think every psalm must first and foremost be about David's experience or the writer's experience. Some of them may be exclusively about the experience of the Redeemer to come. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, that the Spirit of Christ was in the writers in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessary that every psalm have an experience historically bound to the author. So I think... Some people err because they automatically come to the Psalms, and they're very experiential, and many of them are the heart crying out of the believer in distress, in times of trouble, in times of joy, in times of thanksgiving, but some of them are not, and we would make a mistake if we came to the Psalms and we said, there is this sort of slot machine way of approaching the Psalms where you you come to it, you put the coin of, I'm looking for this in, and then... We get it out. So that leaves us with the question, how do we interpret the Psalms? Well, this is a very difficult subject. I mean, there's a lot of things we have to consider. And one of those things that we have to consider, and I would argue tonight, the big thing is, how did the apostles interpret the Psalms? Mm -hmm. Um, We have the fuller light of the new covenant. We have the New Testament. We've got the full revelation, promise in the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New. The apostles have the divinely ordained and inspired interpretation of the Old that is inspired by God, but they give it the inspired interpretation. Now, they don't give it a comprehensive inspired interpretation, and that's one of the other difficult things. The New Testament's not going to give us an interpretive key as demonstrated by the apostles on every part of the Old Testament. They're not going to go through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 in totality and interpret it for us. But what they're going to do is they're going to go through a litany of Psalms, throughout the Psalms, and they're going to show how all of it is somehow related to the person and work of Jesus. And then the believers experience in light of that. Now I'm going to give you some categories tonight. Later on, that'll help you as we think through how to view all these different psalms. I'll give you some categories that I hope will be helpful. Let me just uh, talk about one other thing. I think we always have to, we have to read the psalms in their context immediately, and that's also difficult. Like the proverbs, how many times have you read through the proverbs and you're like, I do not get why these three <laughs> proverbs go with these three proverbs, and sometimes there there may not be a common theme. Um, In which they are intimately related. Sometimes there are and it's harder to see. With the Psalms, there's a context to all the Psalms. But here's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue tonight that what makes this exceedingly difficult is that the context is the theological context of the Psalter and not the chronological context of the Psalter. The reason why it's not the chronological, the way if we read Ephesians, we would read chapter 1 and we would be looking at what's in chapter 4 in light of what Paul has said in chapter 1, and there's a chronological connection. He wrote this a few minutes before he wrote this, and this is preceding this, and the logical and chronological and logical, maybe better, argument of the context of the book is pretty easy to get. With the Psalms, God didn't have them penned Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5. We don't know. Hezekiah presumably gathered them, or organized them. They have some organizational structure. I don't want to get into that tonight. But what I want to say is there is a theological context of the Psalms. Now, what do I mean? Someone gives us the way of the righteous, way of the wicked, way of the wise man, way of the foolish man. That's everywhere through wisdom literature. It would be very easy to say, This means, you know, you're to be the godly, righteous man who doesn't do this. He doesn't hang out with these kind of people. He meditates on God's law day and night. All of that's true. But there's a problem. Because when we come to Psalm 5 and Psalm 14, we read a phrase that Paul picks up on Romans 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. So four psalms from this psalm. We're told there's none righteous, and this psalm says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's a conundrum. If, if the, in the same book we're told there are none righteous, and, and then throughout the book we're told there are righteous people, the question we have to ask is how do they become righteous? And the answer we find in the scriptures is that Christ is the righteous one, mm-hmm. who by faith in him we get his righteousness imputed. That's Paul's argument in Romans 3. That's taught in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. If you were a good Israelite, believing Israelite, you should have known, okay, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Am I righteous? Well, you're not righteous if it's based on just what you're trying to do. You're a legalist. You're self-righteous. But if you're trusting in God's redemption and salvation, as Abraham did in the coming Redeemer, then by faith you are righteous, and then your life also reflects that Mm -hmm. in practical righteousness, which I think the psalm is also talking about. So that's what I mean by understanding the theological context. We always have to say, okay, I want to be righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. I want to be included in that. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by me not walking in the way of the ungodly. That's a result of me being righteous. That is the actions of the righteous. That's not how I become righteous. Mm -hmm. And that's what we always have to ask those questions theologically. So I do think Psalm 1 interesting also that ungodly and sinners is in the plural mm-hmm. and righteous is singular the righteous the righteous man and i think there is a sense where christ is the one in view here he is the sinless perfectly righteous john tells us that right first john if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one so he's the righteous one by faith in him we are also righteous And then we want to live out experientially, not walking in the way of the sinners and and sitting in the seat of the scornful. I'm messing this up. Standing in the path of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful, delighting in the law of God day and night. That should be true of us. We should delight in all God's word all the time. So these are marks of righteous people, but you always have to ask the question, always, because four Psalms later, there are none righteous. Well, that looks like a contradiction Unless we do that theological context approach in seeing. And so that, that would be one way we would see Christ in a psalm. And I think that would account for lots of psalms. When Anytime we read about the righteous, we have to understand that the foundation is the righteous one, Jesus, the Redeemer. Um, that's very clear in the Old and in the New. Remember when Paul goes to defend justification by faith alone, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man... Uh, to whom the Lord does not count iniquity against whom his sin is not imputed, so di- and Paul says that 's teaching imputed righteousness, my sins imputed to Christ, not to me his righteousness to me that 's the covenantal blessing of justification, Paul says in Romans four so you see Paul does this, the apostles do it, but we also have that theological context immediately when we read through the psalms that we're that 's what we have to have a grasp of the content of Scripture, the more we can know, the easier it is to interpret these things. Yeah. Even without the Hebrew, as as important as the Hebrew is, even with an English Bible, the more we know of it, the better off we are in coming to a right interpretation. And we always want to interpret it to the best we can off the theology we get from the apostles, because we have that privilege in the New Covenant. doesn't mean they couldn't know these things. They could. But they had less light. We have more. Why would we not use it? And we, we were responsible to use it. So we read Hebrews 1 and we saw in Hebrews 1 that when we come into Psalm 2, we have a divine dialogue between God the Father and God the Son going on. Very interesting. Hebrews 1 says, to the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He says in Psalm 2, you are my Son, Today I have begotten you. Now, the Apostle Peter is going to tell us he begot him in the resurrection. Peter is going to actually expound on this psalm. This psalm is quoted. Psalm 2 is everywhere in the New Testament. Book of Acts. If you just wanted to do one little study after this, do Psalm 2 in the New Testament. It would take you several days to consider. How did the Apostles use Psalm 2? Every time, and it's even in the book of Revelation, Psalm 2, in the seven letters, of Christ having the dashing the nations with the rod, so very clear, very clear that this psalm's about Christ. Very clear that the Father is speaking to the Son. Look in verse 7. The Son is speaking in verse 7. How do I know? Well, listen to this I will declare the decree. Somebody could say, Well, that's David declaring the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But then you come to Hebrews 1, it says, the father said to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Not to David. Now David was the son of God loosely and typologically. And it may be that there's something typological in this of David as the king going and being enthroned on the throne. Some believe that. John Owen, is the Puritan, is, is willing to grant that it could mean that. But ultimately, it's not about David, and we know that from the New Testament. Ultimately, it's about Christ. Now, there's a call to respond to Christ in here, too. It doesn't mean every verse is about Christ in the sense that it's all about what he did and not about you at all, because it says, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Pay homage to him. Love him. Worship him. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Believe in him. Trust him. So there's a response, a reader response, to what the father's saying to and about the son. In here. And w- again, we get all that very clearly set out in, in the New Testament. Um, let me consider with us Psalm 22, just briefly, if you want to turn there. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to go through what are largely classified, actually, go to Psalm 8 first, uh, what are largely classified as the Messianic Psalms. Mm-hmm. So there are, if you read solid theologians, everybody's going to agree that there are what we call messianic psalms, psalms about the Messiah, psalm 2, Mm -hmm. psalm 8, psalm 16, psalm 22, psalm 45, psalm 72, psalm 89, psalm 110. I think I'm correct in saying those are the ones everybody calls the messianic psalms. I'm going to argue every psalm is a messianic psalm. And there are a lot of reformed theologians who would agree with that. But these are the ones that we have explicitly set out in the New Testament telling us. That's why we call them the Messianic Psalms. It's kind of not fair, because just because we have an explicit statement about these, it could make it seem like somehow the other ones are not about him. 69, too, I think is sometimes included, because uh, Judas's betrayal is taken out of there. He lifts up his heel against his familiar friend, and that's spoken of in the New Testament out of Psalm 69. So you have these... Messianic psalms, because they are clearly said to be about Jesus Christ, at least in parts of them. We'll pick up on that briefly at the end here. But um, so Psalm eight, I'm not going to read it all the way through. It's a creation psalm. Uh, on a prima facie reading, on a surface reading, it doesn't seem to be about the Redeemer at all. It seems that David, who if the title is accurate, I think it is, David is is meditating on God's original design for man to have dominion over creation. Though man was made a little lower than the angels, he has dominion over the lower world, over all creation. Mm-hmm. And, and you read this psalm, and the, there's an inclusio, there's bookends, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And you might just read that, and if you're just reading that atomistically, Let's say you're having your devotions at home and you're, like, you're reading through the Psalms and you're in Psalm 8 today. You just read that and you don't think about any other portion of scripture. You're probably not going to get a lot out of this in a gospel-focused way. But when we come to the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, this psalm is part portion of this psalm is quoted in Hebrews 2, 5 through 11. And the, and the writer of Hebrews explicitly says that the son of man in this psalm in verse four what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him is both about mankind in general but most specifically about the son of man the redeemer who by his redemptive work his death and resurrection secures the new creation so the world to come the new heavens and the new earth through the shed blood of jesus he suffered and we don't see all things put under redeemed man But we see Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says. So the writer of Hebrews sees all of this rich biblical theology and how all of this creation psalm. And you know what's interesting to me? I think in the original intent, that was always the goal. Because anybody should have read this and said, yeah, that's how it should be, but that's not how it is after the fall. So there should have been a perspective looking... When will all things be put under man? Because it doesn't look like hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes are under man. Right. Yeah. And that would be included in creation. Mm-hmm. Little lower than the angels, all things put under him. But in the new heavens and the new earth, man will have dominion over everything, including the angels. And that's the point of the writer of Hebrews. I don't want to belabor that. But... So, again, there are clues within, but then we're always using the New Testament-inspired interpretation the apostles by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit who wrote this is working in them to tell us what it was always pointing to. Does that make sense? Yes. It's always the original intent. I don't buy this. Well, it meant this generally in the Old Testament and then the apostles wrote an ending for it. I don't mm-hmm. buy that. I think the whole Bible always meant what the apostles tell us it meant. And that if you were a Jew in the Old Covenant, you could to some extent buy the working of the Spirit and a due use of reading God's word and trusting in him, come to a right interpretation. You're not going to know it's Jesus Christ by name, but you could certainly know God's redemptive plan, Genesis 3.15, to renew all things and redeem and restore. Mm -hmm. They should have gotten that. Genesis 3.15 is always that foundation to which everything else, that first gospel promise. Mm -hmm. So even the recreation of the world is included in that. Does that make sense? Psalm 22, quickly. And then I'm going to give you the points of interpretation and the categories, which is what I really want to move to. Psalm 22, I'm not going to read this, but obviously, several of our Lord Jesus' sayings on the cross, starting with that first one. Now, you will sometimes find commentators, and I just, some of them are no longer alive, and, and some of them that are, I just, I wish I could just shoot them an email and say, Why are you doing this? Okay. Where they want to say, Jesus is taking up David's words on his, on his lips. How about. The spirit of Jesus inspired the words that Jesus would speak on the cross through David. How about that? Because that's what Peter says. Yeah. So unless unless we want to argue with the apostle Peter's understanding as an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, yeah. why would we say Jesus is taking up David's words and then himself appropriating them? That doesn't even make any sense. This is Jesus speaking Because he's the eternal son. How could Jesus speak a thousand years before he came? He's God. He's God the son. He's the one that inspired the whole Old Testament. So I take the approach with a lot of the Puritans, and I think it's the safer approach. This was Christ speaking through David, prophesying of his own sufferings to come and the glories that followed. Now, I don't personally think that Psalm 22 is about anything in David's experience, where we'll look at one that is clearly David's experience in a moment. But what I want to show you is verse 1 down to verse 21, you have the suffering of Christ. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to take time to read that, but if you want to mark that or whatever, verse 1 to 21, the sufferings of Christ. You know, I can count all my bones, they divide my garments. They cast lots for I me mean, very clearly the gospel, substantiating that this is about our Lord Jesus. And he's crying out, you know, to the Lord, save me, help me, don't be far from me. And then there's this hinge, you have answered me. He's died and he's heard before he dies and he's answered in the resurrection.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you have a resurrection psalm. And it's fascinating, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 2, quotes verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And the author of Hebrews says that's about Christ Mm -hmm. now, in glory, ascended, the glorified, risen, exalted Christ, standing in the midst of his people, leading them in worship. Mm -hmm. So again, we have a very clear, so sufferings, and then verse, second part of 21 down, is the glories that followed, and all the fruit of Christ's sufferings. So that's, now, that's not a key to every psalm. I mean, you can't go into every psalm and say, okay, this half is about the sufferings, Mm -hmm. this half is about the glory, like you can with this one. Again, it's hard. It takes a lot of work with the psalms. But I think that's a very clear one, where you have sufferings and glory that follow. Now, turn, if you would, to Psalm 89, Now, obviously, I'm not going to read all this, 52 mm-hmm. verses. But what I'll show you is that you have, you have David. Um, you, have a, you have a contemplation on the Davidic covenant by a guy named Ethan the Ezraite. And you'll see there in verse 3 and 4, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build your throne to all generations. So he's reflecting on the language of the Davidic covenant because we're in the Davidic period. All the Psalms fall under the period of the Davidic Covenant. So from the Davidic Covenant till Christ comes, all the scripture written would fall under the period of the Davidic Covenant. Does that make sense? So the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the prophets, all of that needs to be read in light of the Davidic Covenant because that's all the revelation that's written during the Davidic Covenant period until Christ comes and consummates the covenant and the new covenant so there's all these meditations on the davidic covenant god promised that he would give david a son that's christ so very clearly we know that he is the king he is the son of david he sits on the throne of david even now in glory so all the new testament tells us that so clearly there's just no way you can be mistaken about that if you read your bible that jesus fulfilled the promises to david Matthew the genealogy opens the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Davidic covenant and so he so even there we should know this is not about David this is about David's greater son right but There are these sort of experiential observations by Ethan the Ezraite, one living under the period of the Davidic covenant. And you have these these statements about God's dealings with David in the covenant and about David's sons. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law, if they do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes, then I will punish their transgression with the rod. And that happens to the kings of Israel, the sons of David. And it happens to the greater son of David, though he never sinned at the cross. He's punished with the rod of God's wrath for our sin, for the violations of the covenant. So, but, so what I'm saying is that this psalm is not exclusively about Jesus. And there is benefit in this psalm for us in Ethan the Ezraite's meditations on the faithfulness and the, the um, goodness of God and the righteousness of God in light of the believer. But notice how the psalm ends. And again, time would fail us to go through all this together, but notice, um, notice that last verse, verse 50 and 51, sorry. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many people. So, Ethan the Ezraite is saying, why hasn't God fulfilled these promises to David? Why are we experiencing the reproach in the nations? Why is Israel rebellious? Why, why have, have, you not, have you not made good on these promises yet? We know that you have sworn. We know that your oath stands and your promise stands. He's recited back to God what God's promised to do. And then he says, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of many peoples, which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed Messiah. The footsteps of your Messiah. So again, all the kings of Israel were little m messiahs, typically, mm-hmm. were types, but Christ is the anointed of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. So, you have these, again, perspective, looking forward, when is God going to fulfill the promise? You see, in the experience of the believers waiting in the midst of difficulty and trial. Now, Again, I can never, ever, ever do justice to the whole Psalter in an hour for you in any kind of adequate way. But what I want to do, I want to, I want us to consider tonight, um, I want us to consider some principles. So if you have a pen and paper, you might want to write these down. Um, I've also put these on the blog, if you guys at feeding on Christ, um, under the Songs of the Sun. And I want to give you what I think are the categories that help us interpret the Psalms and to see Christ in them. Now, three of these I'm getting from a guy named William Binney, who wrote a book. Uh, you, can buy, you can buy a hard copy. It's been republished under the name um, Pathway to the Psalter. Binney is B-I-N-N-I-E, William Binney, Pathway to the Psalter. Binney is remarkable. I think it's arguably, my Hebrew prophet turned us onto it, Ben Shaw, and I think it's arguably the best book written on the Psalms for helping you understand the interpretation. It's not easy all the time. It um, was written in the 19th century, so it has a little bit of the language difficulty, but it's Binnie, B-I-N-N-I-E, William Binney. Pathway to the Psalter, there's also a, uh, the original title was the Psalms, the History, Teaching, and Use. And you can get a free copy of that on Google Books PDF. So if you don't want to spend money or read the great introduction of My Hebrew Prof, which is really helpful, you can get this. The Psalms, The History, Teaching, and Use. And what Benny does is he goes through and he kind of talks about how people have interpreted the Psalms. And one of the things he says is Calvin, Calvin was one who was willing to talk about typological figures in the psalms that you know Mm -hmm. that Christ could be present in the psalms through the use of typology as we've talked a lot about but the Calvin sort of had trepidation about applying typology too freely and there's reason to to be cautious but that what Calvin ended up doing Benny said is almost exclusively saying David was a type of Christ um, and that Melchizedek because Melchizedek is so clearly said to be in the book of Hebrews. And so Calvin sort of erred on not wanting to often apply principles of typology. And I think he did. I mean, I think Calvin is not inspired. He was great. He's not perfect. And he did a lot, and he was very influential in biblical interpretation. That's why a lot of guys will say, well, Calvin didn't interpret it that way. Well, I mean, we should love how Calvin interpreted. We should study it. But he's not infallible. What Calvin did, a guy um, has done a, a tremendous work on Calvin um, called Judaizing Calvin and he uh, got him pack and he basically argues that Calvin always looked for the plain reading of the psalm and so that was the experience of the believer and then how that was normative for us as believers and then secondarily how different psalms were about Christ. I'm not sure Calvin that was his sort of standard approach I would reject that because I think that's too simplistic as I've already showed you tonight I think that there are psalms that can't be about David's experience and David didn't even write them all and some of the psalms we don't even know the historical context so that doesn't make sense plus the apostles tell us about several of the psalms that they are psalm eight it's not about David I mean yes he's meditating on God's glory and creation he's praising God But it's about Jesus restoring what was lost in the fall. So it's a new creation psalm. So I think we have to be careful to just have this standard, first about the believer, David or whoever wrote it, and then how you glean from that, okay, David praised God, I should praise God, David did this, I should do this. Obviously, we want to do that where that's mandated. But I don't think every psalm is teaching us that. So if Calvin did that, I I would be cautious with that kind of reductionistic approach. What Benny does, and here's what I want you guys to write down tonight. He gave us three categories. I've added two that I think he should have added as I've considered them a little bit. I hope that's not selfish or I think that's okay maybe. But um, the first is typically Messianic Psalms. So he says those Psalms in which there are uh, figures or... Um, places or events that are typical of Christ or any saving work. So if the altar is mentioned or the sacrifices are mentioned in the Psalms, clearly they are pointing to the cross, which is the altar and Christ who is the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says those sacrifices didn't do anything for the consciences of the people. His does. Mm-hmm. Those were pointing to him. So again, clearly, animal sacrifice, typological, pointing to Jesus, foreshadowing. The temple, there's a lot of Psalms that talk about the worship of God in his holy mountain in the temple. Though David didn't have the temple, his son built it. Some of the later Psalms talking about that. Some of the perspective Psalms looking forward. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Clearly, the temple is is a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus said there's one greater than the temple in Matthew 12. So anytime you would come across something about the altar, think the cross. Sacrifice, think Jesus and his sacrifice. Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Think the blood of Jesus on your conscience for your guilt, guilt and your sin. The temple, looking to God's holy mountain, think heaven and what Jesus has secured and Jesus himself being the temple of God in whom God dwells and in whom we worship by faith in him so I think we are meant to see all those things typologically I think we are also to see figures in the psalms typologically so David um, I think that we are to see any references to the priest as typological of Jesus so you know the psalm um, uh, how how beautiful it is for brethren to dwell together in um, unity. It's like uh, oil on the beard of Aaron running down his garment. Well, Aaron was a type of Christ. Christ is the high priest. Again, the book of Hebrews. Aaron typified Jesus. Jesus gives the people of God the unity and that anointing oil pointing to the Holy Spirit. This is standard reformed biblical interpretation because this is what the New Testament seems to necessitate Mm -hmm. when reading the typological does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. The types in the Psalms that we're always to say, how does this impact me now in light of what I know about the fulfillment of all things in the new covenant? Because we don't live in the days of the temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood. We have a better temple, a better priest, a better sacrifice. So, and a better king. David was king, Jesus is king. Anytime you read about the king in the Psalms, think about Jesus ultimately, even if it's typically about the earthly king at that time he is always preparing you for the king of kings always give the king your strength yes that was to david well we don't have a king well we do have a king we have jesus what good does this psalm do me when david's not my king jesus is my king that's what good it does me god gave jesus his strength our king is mighty to save So that's where we want to kind of learn these typological psalms. And that may be that some of those psalms, some of the psalms may only have portions that are typological and other portions that have the experience of David as an example to believers. Does that make sense? Like, we're not saying every psalm is exclusively typological. But it may only have a few verses. But we've got to go in and say, well, what do these things mean? in light of what we know about Christ. But there may be other things where David in a psalm where he is talking about the forgiveness of sins and going to God's altar, which would point to the cross and us going to Christ, would cry out for the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's teaching us to repent of our sins and to confess our sins to God, right? And when I was silent, my bones wasted away with grief. And then I said, I'll confess my sin to the Lord, and he forgave my iniquity. Well, that's not saying Jesus did that for you. No, you need to confess your sins to God. So we're not trying to do away with all experience of the believer, but that's always in light and that's where we're coming now, in light of the redemption that was typified in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ. Now, secondly then, we have directly predictive prophetic psalms. Directly predictive psalms. Now these would have some sort of Prophetic elements, Psalm 22 would fall in this. That is a directly predictive. I think that is an exclusively prophetic Psalm. Mm -hmm. Just like Isaiah 53 is not about Isaiah. It's not about Israel. It's about the suffering Lord Jesus who was made sin for us. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That's only about Jesus. That's not about Israel typologically. It's not about Isaiah typologically. It's about the coming suffering servant. Psalm 22 would fall in there, I think. Psalm 45 may very well fall in there. Very clear prophecy. Sometimes you have typological and prophetic together. Psalm 110 The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's the Father saying to the Son. Mm-hmm and promising the son prophetically that his enemies are going to be put under his feet. And then later on, the father says to the son, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Mm. Well, that's prophetic that Christ is going to be the priest after the order of Melchizedek and that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. So you see how there's typical and prophetic, if that doesn't completely confuse everybody here. So sometimes you have sort of a coupling of those two elements. But what Benny says is you have to look at these psalms and you have to see which ones are... um, largely prophetic there may be elements of a psalm that is that are there may be only a couple verses in a psalm that are prophetic and then there may be some experience of david mixed in or the other author so again you have to really just say as you read the psalms you have to really consider carefully as best you can who's writing this what's he saying and you got to look at the kind of the who's speaking to who That's always a big one in this. Who's speaking? You see that in Psalm 1, the father speaking to the son. Who's speaking? Because you might say, well, that's David speaking to somebody. No, it's the father speaking to the son. And that kind of helps you go through and start to say, um, what is this? Okay, third category. Benny calls it mystically messianic psalms. Now, what Benny is going to say here is that these are the psalms um, in which the believer's union with Christ is emphasized and the benefits that we get by virtue of his union. So he's going to list Psalm 16, which has a resurrection statement at the end. You will not allow my soul to see corruption. You will not leave your Holy One in Sheol. And Peter says that was about Christ and the resurrection, not about David. But everything leading up to that is about what the believer benefit how he benefits from what christ would do because of his union with christ does that make sense so that you may be reading a psalm and everything in it may be applying to you as these are benefits i get from the redemption i have in christ but it may also be about christ's own experience in how you get that benefit Mm -hmm. because christ was a man he's the god man Mm -hmm. But he was a man, and by virtue of our union with him, he first goes through this, experiences this, and then we benefit. So I would say everything in Psalm 16, except the last verse, David experienced in his life. And on Resurrection Day, David's going to experience the rest of it, when his soul will not be left in Sheol, and he will be raised out of the grave like his Lord Jesus was. Does that make sense? Everything before... The passage that Peter says was only about Christ in his resurrection because David's still in the grave, Peter says. He did see corruption. David will experience when he's raised up. But everything before that he experienced in his life because of what Christ would do. It works retrospectively. Okay, I know, we gotta go. This is a lot. Two more, if you guys can hang in there. Psalms of trust in Christ. This is easy. This is the easy one for me. These are all the Psalms where David's like, I'm cast down, I'm disquieted, but I'm going to hope in your salvation. Well, how do we have salvation? In Jesus. I mean, he is looking forward to the day God will give that full redemption. Any Psalms about forgive my sins, Psalm 51, Psalms of repentance, would fall under Psalms of trust in Christ. Psalms of trust in Christ. Any part of the Christian experience, worship, confession, repentance, joy, desperation, crying out for deliverance, any of that is the believer's song of trust in God's redemption in Christ. And if you look in those Psalms, the key is anytime you see the word redemption, salvation, deliverance, there's your key. The believer, trust in Christ. Now, here's what I always say to people. Some people say, well, I think some of these psalms are just about the believer's experience and why do we have to keep importing christ because we wouldn't even call him a believer unless he believed in someone Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you wouldn't even have an experience without jesus you would you would not be a christian you'd have nothing to experience without redemption does that make sense so i don't understand why some people want to just talk about the believer in his godward focus irrespective of the redemption he has because to even call him a believer means he believes in someone. He believes in the Redeemer who redeemed him and enabled him to live a Christian life. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay, keep questions if you have them. Last one, and we've already touched on this. There are creation, new creation psalms. And I, I think this is something we really need to get, get a grip on. Psalm 8, very clearly we've looked at that. Creation, new creation that's all dependent on what Jesus did at the cross. He secures the new creation. He's going to consummate that one day. David is oftentimes foretelling that. Sometimes in the Psalms, we've been reading through the Psalms in worship, Psalm 96 and 97, the trees will clap their hands because he's coming, he's coming to judge the world. And in and then there's these statements about the sea is going to praise him and roar and While that's true now, in part, that all creation does praise him, when we come to the book of Revelation, we see that every creature in the sea cries out to him who sits on the throne. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, creation is going to exuberantly and evidently be praising its maker, the inanimate creation, as well as image bearers. So all of that is dependent on the work of Christ. Everything in the Bible is moving to new creation. Psalm 102. Which is mentioned in Hebrews one, um, Hebrews one ten through twelve. Father says to the Son, and he quotes Psalm one. and a you Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your fingers. Creation, mm-hmm. they will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. New creation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Father is citing Psalm 102 to the son about what the son's going to do in the new creation. So you see where I'm getting these categories. At least those verses in Psalm 102 are creation, new creation, messianic psalm portions. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So... I think you could add to this, I'm going to stop and you guys can ask questions or give pushback or ask for clarification. I I think you could add categories to this, but I find this very helpful as I've studied the Psalms over the years. And I've never come across a very complete categorical way of looking at different parts of Psalms and different Psalms that I found very satisfactory outside of Benny and then adding these two other Psalms of Trust and Psalms of Creation, New Creation in light of the Messiah. Um, questions or comments you guys have, or was that just overwhelming overkill? Uh, <laughs> a well, a lot to
1: think about
0: does it does it make sense when oh, I not. say every psalm is messianic in some way, even even a believer's trust in the in the Christ, so even the, the believer's experience in in Christ in the coming Christ, the psalms of trust would be messianic because. Because the believer so, has to trust in in the redeemer. So
2: David's conviction is messing on because he would not know his conviction without you know, Christ.
0: Well, what I would say about David's conviction is, yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, in part, even repentance is a benefit of the the redeeming grace of God in Christ that He He gives His beloved His people repentance. But I think in the Psalms of repentance, you would look for things about, you know. Sacrifice you know purge me with hyssop I'll be clean these typological things where David is asking God under the figures of the Old Testament cleansing rituals to cleanse him but what he's ultimately saying is he needs the cleansing blood of Jesus mm-hmm.
2: um, how do you differentiate between when it says the man is Jesus and the man is not Jesus yeah I think union
0: the- union with Christ here what I think we always want to say is um in many, many, many places and in the overwhelming uh, teaching of Scripture, union with Christ means it is first and foremost about Jesus as the Redeemer and then also true for us in Him. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to do an either-or and say it's only about Jesus. Sometimes people err and say, the Bible's not about you, it's about Jesus. Well, no, it's about Jesus and your union with Him and how you benefit from Him. Mm -hmm. It is about you and if it's not about you, you're going to go to hell. I mean... If you have no part, Jesus said, if, you have no, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Right. So, I mean, I think we want to be careful with that. It's about Jesus, not about us. No, it is about us, but it's not first and foremost about us. First and foremost, we need to say, how is God's redemptive work worked out in Christ? And then how are we benefiting from that by faith union in him? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So Psalm 1, I take the righteous man to be Christ and then all believers in him, the one and the many, by union with him. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I was just seeing how you decipher that throughout all the Psalms. Who is Jesus? You think that's clearly about Jesus.
0: I mean, we, we only have righteousness in Christ. Yeah. He is the source of our righteousness. So I don't think we can ever talk about our own positional or practical righteousness apart from our union with Jesus, who is the righteous one and the source of our righteousness. I think the New Testament demands that we read the, the scriptures that way. And I think Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, demands that. He believed the promise of the Redeemer, he was impu- righteousness was imputed to him. Now, when you have those things about Phineas, you know, Phineas drove the spear through the prostitute pagan woman and the, the Israelite guy that brought her into the camp, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, well, that is a... Uh, that is an outworking and evidence that he was truly righteous and Phineas was one looking forward and trusting God for the righteousness that would come from God and in faith he acted according to God's word in um, purging evil from the camp in that sense so he doesn't get righteousness from that but it evidences the righteousness he has that would be a book of James does that make sense? yeah? All right. Other questions?
1: Seems like there there would be a lot of overlap potentially between the Mystically Messianic Psalms and the Psalms of Trust, trust in Christ. Christ. There is, and I, I tried to, to distinguish, distinguish you, a little. Can You distinguish a little bit more between the Yeah, two sure. Just different facets on the same thing.
0: Yeah, I think you could probably um, you could subsume Psalms of Trust to Christ in Christ into the mysti- mystically messianic, but why I distinguished them is I think what Benny is saying with the mystically messianic, and what he means by that is union with Christ, where every part of the psalm is true about Christ and then true about the believer in union with him, where there are some psalms that are not true about Christ. Christ doesn't repent of sin. Now, he does become the sin bearer positionally, and by imputation he has made sin. My sin is put on him. And so in that sense, I can say even the psalms of repentance... I need to be careful here. In one sense, you could say, well, Christ, though he needed no repentance, went through a baptism of repentance yeah. because he is our representative mm-hmm. because our sins imputed to him. But he doesn't repent of sin. And so there is an experience the believer has that Jesus doesn't have. I think I'm right in saying this, in that Christ doesn't know what it is to have to have repented of sin. Now, he does know what it is to be treated as if he had the guilt and shame of sin, though he had no sin. So that's where I want to be careful with that. But Peter, to answer your question, I think there are some Psalms where certain parts of the Psalms are only true of the the believer in his experience. My bones wasted away when I didn't confess my sin. Jesus never knew that. Now, he knew what it was to have his bones waste away under the wrath of God, but he didn't. Do you see what I'm saying? That there, There are experiences believers have that Jesus didn't have though it could be argued that he had them by imputation at the cross. And I want to be careful there. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot happens at the cross that we're not even able to enter into in the experience of Jesus. Mm -hmm. In the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. But he never knows what it is, like David did for nine months not to repent and then suddenly to have conviction of sin and repent. But the believer does. And that's a grace of God, right? And that's a benefit of Christ. And... It only happens as we look to God's promise of salvation. So, that's a good question, though. um,
2: I was just reading on, again, on the road, Luke 24, on verse 44, when it says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning you.
0: Some are going to say he doesn't mean every part of every psalm. And what I want to say is tonight, he does. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that every verse is about Jesus. It means that every verse is somehow organically related to something about Jesus's person work or the benefits we receive from that. That's right. So that's where I want to just clarify it's not all typological. Every, Jesus is not in every word in the Psalms, but every everything the Psalm says somehow is related because he's the foundation, right? Paul says no other foundation can be laid but Jesus Christ. You know,
1: there's a difference between typological and about and related to Christ. Yeah,
0: yeah. And even there's a difference between typological and prophetic. And there's a difference between prophetic and... Um, And what we say about um, uh, trust in, so that he's the source of our redemption, right? Believer's strength. The thing that I found, single statement here tonight, most helpful was the statement whole Bible always meant that the apostles and Jesus in the New Testament show us it meant. And that's what Peter says. It's not a reinterpretation of it. And that's consistent throughout the New Testament. You see that all over the place. But I think that's a really, really, really helpful thought. This is what it always meant. We're just giving you a clearer picture of that. It's not we're taking this and putting a new story. Right. What I want to say here, though, is we do want to be careful not to strip the Old Testament of historical context. And that is a danger with what we're doing with biblical theology. While I think, I wholeheartedly believe what I gave you was sound and in accord with the teaching of scripture. There's another sense too where we need to understand the the, the Israel's wandering through the wilderness and, you know, the experiences they experienced. Psalm 88 talks about God coming up and coming down and the congregation going forward. Well, we don't want to just move from, The words of the Psalm to houses about Christ without getting the historical context, if we can. Um, The same with, you know, understanding Isaiah's relationship to uh, to his son, Mahal Shahal Heshbez. And while he may be a type of the the child who would be born and the son who would be given, we want to understand the historical setting. Because it's not that there are two meanings, historical and then theological, but the historical helps us get squarely to the theological a lot of times in a safe way. It keeps us grounded. So we're not just loosely allegorizing whatever we want. Mm-hmm. So that's the only caveat I would give there is just that this, you know, that i solely, I wholly believe that what Peter says is the whole Testament was about the sufferings and glories of Christ. And they, the people that wrote it, they were looking, they were like, when is this going to happen? Mm-hmm. They were searching for what manner and what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, yeah. and they didn't see as full as we did. So they didn't write one thing historically, and then the apostles are like, "Well, let me just use this and explain how we think this is about Jesus." It was about Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I I do think Peter teaches that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Peter
0: teaches that um, very clearly, yeah. and I think a lot of people miss that. Mm-hmm. That's the big. That's a big underlying thing about what we're yeah. doing here in the Emmaus sessions.
2: Sure. Like, you know, I think you gotta type the anti type, right? The type is always imperfect the Right. type is, is always perfect. So I, I guess even when you get to the with typology, I know we gotta be very careful. Um, I do understand um a type can be um, a person event that actually you know actually happens. Yeah, person um, place the, stinger event, yeah, right. Event, ceremonies, you know, um, you know, all of these things that uh gives us a deep, well not a deeper but um um a more clear understanding of when we start using type. Yeah. Like I mean, I mean you, you got so many, you got so many the the, the, the serpent on the pole, right? The picture of right. you know Jesus. I uh, just had that the serpent was lifted up, so Yeah, like, right, right. He lifted up. You got that. Got the, uh, the, the ark. You right. Know? The ark is a picture of Christ? Had to wrap the god from the outside right. of that. Right. Of and you'll god.
0: find references to the ark in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. That would be another thing where God, you know, dwells between the cherubim. Well, mm-hmm. that's heaven, but it was also on the ark, and the ark was a, was typological about Christ, and the writer of Hebrews says, mm-hmm. uh, everything in the tabernacle was pointing to him, so.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we just don't want to limit it just to typology. That's mm-hmm. where I want to be careful as much as I love it. You had a question.
1: Yeah, if, if you could ask, when you go into it and read it, what is it you're looking for? Like when I open up Genesis, I'm thinking of the beginnings and all of that, mm-hmm. when I go to the Kings, I'm thinking about that time period. When, you open
0: up Psalm, what is your question that you're looking for? Well, for okay, so here's here's the trick. We always want to try to think as comprehensively canonically as we can. So in as much as we can think about right, the Bible is unfolding the redemptive plan of God from creation to the fall to the need for redemption to God's eternal plan and giving the gospel. And then the Bible is the unfolding of that redemptive plan of God and the restoration of all things. So we always want to get the big picture story. And that comes from us really knowing, you know, knowing the scripture and not just taking a book or a chapter or a psalm and kind of putting it on the table and saying, okay, what is this about? Irrespective of what the rest of the scripture teaches. So even in reading Genesis 1, I'm going to read that through the lens of John 1 that says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Mm -hmm. and then everything he says about light and darkness spiritually, and how there was light and darkness here, and that was preparing us for the spiritual analogy, and then I'm going to read it through Colossians, where it says that Christ created all things, he was before all things, that all things were made through him and for him, and that means Genesis 1 is about Christ and the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit's over the waters. And I'm going to understand the significance of that in the overarching plan of God. And ultimately, the plan is to restore that creation that was lost to something higher and better in the new creation. And so that's why the Bible opens and closes with those bookends. Um, One of the things I think some people struggle with is they think, well, what if I didn't live today when I had the whole Bible? Well, that's the wrong question. You do live today with the whole Bible. Why would you want to go back and have less revelation? But even saying that doesn't mean they couldn't have understood that this was moving to a goal, that God was carrying this along to something. And so what we're doing here is trying to learn how to read the scriptures with that understanding of the unfolding mystery that Paul talks about and how that mystery is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So the Psalms, I'm going to read them as one who's trusting in the crucified and risen Christ. And And to the best of my ability, I'm going to say, How am I, as a believer, going to benefit from this today? If I don't do that and I just read Kings historically, (sniffs) not reading Kings anymore. (laughs) It has nothing to do with me. That was about them back then. But if you understand that, you know, these biblical principles pointing you to Christ, either one king may be a bad example and we're waiting for the righteous king to come that God promised. Mm -hmm. So by contrast sometimes, or by way of examples so of the judges series those deliverers all were somehow f- foreshadowing the ultimate delivery we would have to cross so it's all moving to the cross everything's moving to the cross everything moves into Jesus and then it moves out from him does that make sense a little bit i know it's a lot if this is never this is not something new i would say that too this is something that's taught through church history sadly it's been lost and it's sort of over the last maybe 50, 60 years. There's been a bit of a resurgence in, in understanding the plan of redemption and reading the Bible as a whole, as one story, one big meta narrative. Does that make sense? And then all these parts fitting into that.
1: Okay. So help correct me. When I approach Psalm, it's often been devotional. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So it should sh- be. It should
0: be. But isn't trusting Christ part of your devotion and seeing Christ and? I mean that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, right? So the the heart of our devotion is growing in communion and union, growing in communion with Jesus Christ, in whom we have union and redemption. And so all the parts of our Christian life, and that was the point I was trying to make. With the believer, only has a devotional experience as a Christian because of Jesus, because of the work of redemption. So we should always be saying, as we read those Psalms. Yes, you should be saying, "How does this relate to me?" But not irrespective of what is it saying about Christ. But how does it relate to me in relationship to the fulfillment we have in Christ? Did, does that kind of help a little bit? I know that's. I know this is a lot. Um, in the
2: Treasury, David, does Spurgeon embellish a little bit more than?
0: Shale? Yeah, I mean, Spurgeon sort of allegorized and kind of got fanciful with typology a lot. You got to be careful with that. Then again, sometimes I'm like, well, I'd rather have somebody show me him where he's not than not show me him at all. <laughs> I mean, that's not good. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> but, I mean, I'd rather sit under somebody that does some fanciful stuff and gets to Christ than a guy that doesn't preach Christ. Yeah.
1: Gotcha, okay. But and,
0: I, I don't—that's uh, not good either. We want to be careful with Scripture, so. Um,
2: I, I think, I, you know, I, I've heard it said, like, you know, we, we have the benefit in the Old Testament the New Testament and language. Yeah. Um, And when you walk through the book of Acts, like, this yeah. is— I guess you know you see the most inspired, the inspired sermons. Yeah. Um, that comes from the apostles. So, yeah. To kind of if you get a chance, kind of read through the book of Acts and see how they took the Old Testament and really kind of preach. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of helps. Um, um, yeah. Us look uh, at how we you know go about interpreting yeah. the Old Testament because at that time they didn't have the completion of the canon. The yeah. was the Old Testament yeah so this is what and the to same
0: to meaning was embedded in it it yeah. just wasn't as clear yeah, yeah, yeah. now let me say one, one other thing you'll often read in the Psalms these prayers of why am I cast down why have you cast me off why am I abandoned forgetting why have you forsaken me forgetting that clear one but you often find these these prayers of desperation and, and we've all felt it in our souls. And we draw strength from the fact that David had these experiences. What is interesting, and I want you guys to listen to this, this is very, very, very interesting to me, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, a guy named Clowney, Edmund Clowney, makes the point that um, in the Old Testament, you have these cries of lamentation. That's what we'll call them, prayers of lamentation. And they're found in the Psalms, they're found in Jeremiah, they're found in the Prophets, Lamentations, (laughs) We have got a whole book called Lamentations, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not found in the New Testament. The apostles, prayers, never is Paul like, why have you cast me off? I mean, he's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's like, I rejoice in my sufferings. Never is he like, oh, God, why have you cast me off? Instead, they're taking the Old Testament verses, you will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And what Edmund Clowney says is that in redemptive history, those prayers of lamentation find their culmination in the prayer of the one who hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the new covenant, we have a more definitive knowledge that God will not forsake us. Now, they knew that he wouldn't, and they trusted him. But there's a sense where we see the gospel blessings more definitively so that you don't find those prayers. Now, somebody has said to me, well, what about in the book of Revelation, the martyrs, um, the martyrs cry out, how long? Mm -hmm. But they're not saying, have you forsaken us? They're saying, when are you going to bring judgment on those who shed our blood? They're with him. They're not crying out, why have you forsaken me? They're close to God in glory. Their souls are. They're under the altar. They're with him. They're covered under the blood of Jesus. They're in they're in the presence of God, just like the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So when they're saying, how long, O Lord? They're like, when are you going to judge the wicked people that hate your church? Mm-hmm. So that would be closer to an imprecatory psalm in that sense. The prayers of David to bring judgment on those that hate God's people. But anyway, I just wanted to put that out. That it, That's just something to think about. That while we do have those experiences because of our sin or neglect of seeking God we have these periods where we feel abandoned but there seems to me that when we look at the one who cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me our souls are able to say God has not abandoned me I will never leave you nor forsake you because I forsook my son and so that's Clowney's point I think there's something to that I would never want you to like take that and run with that a hundred percent and there's guys that would disagree in my circles with that but I I'm I'm just intrigued by that, that the New Testament has no prayer like that.